Hello everyone and welcome to our first and as yet unnamed podcast. My name is Rosa and I run a subgroup looking at all the issues that the WI has campaigned on over the last hundred years. One of the WI's current key campaigns focuses on mental health and I was excited to take advantage of this to talk about women and autism. I haven't said this publicly before but several years ago I was diagnosed with autism It explained so much to me about myself and the problems that I've had all my life. I told my autistic friends, some of whom said that they were surprised that I hadn't known I was autistic already, but I stopped telling my non-autistic friends pretty quickly because there was so much misinformation and so many stereotypes. I thought that the diagnosis of autism would bring clarity, but instead it triggered a lot of confusion as my non-autistic friends struggled to relate the caricatures that they'd seen on popular TV programmes and films to me, a real person. So when I saw that April was host to Autism Awareness Day, and also happens to be the month of my autism birthday, I thought, brilliant, I will shift the responsibility. And I was lucky enough for that person to be Laura James. Laura James is a journalist and the author of Odd Girl Out, which explores her late diagnosis of autism. So many people have told me that her book changed how they felt about their own autism, and I was so excited to talk to her. I began by asking her why she wrote her book and who her book was for. So I, well, two things happened. The first thing is most adults who get an autism diagnosis suspect that they're autistic before they go along for the assessment. And that's how you kind of get the assessment. And so before I, before I booked an assessment, I looked around to try and find um, books by people like me. And I couldn't find them. I found a lot of books by parents of autistic kids. I found a lot of books by professionals. And I found a lot of books by men. But I couldn't find any books by autistic women, really. Um, who, Particularly women who'd kind of raised children, had a career, all of those things. So that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But also, I'm a journalist. And there is this kind of life is copy thing. And so any time anything happens in the life of somebody who writes for a living, you do find yourself thinking, will I write about this? How will I write about this? When will I write about this? So it was kind of always an inevitability, I think. And do you find much has changed since you've written it in terms of understanding? Uh, Well, really, uh, one of the really great things, so I was really lucky that my book was very successful and it got an awful lot of media attention because it was really the first memoir that was published in the UK by a mainstream publisher by an autistic woman. And since then, um, lots of other books are coming out. So brilliant Sarah um, Sarah Gibbs, who you probably know on Twitter, she's got a book coming out. Um, A couple of American women have books coming out. Catherine May, who um, just wrote the very successful book Wintering, her previous book was a book on being an, an adult woman diagnosed autism so I think one of the big things that has changed um, and that I'm really thrilled about is that all of these other books have come out because there's this saying I'm sure you've heard if you've met one autistic person you've met one autistic person and all of our experiences are different so it's been really great to um, to have all of these voices talking about the same subject but differently. So with that said given it is so individual how do you explain what it is to people? Ah, uh, that's yeah. Well, that's a really interesting one. So it, it's different for different people, really. But I think for me, um, it's simply like just having your brain wired differently. Oh, I think she's frozen. Hopefully, she'll be back in just a minute. Okay, maybe her internet connection has 
well and truly gone. Okay, we'll we'll hang on and see if she comes back in a second. Okay, so maybe I'll use this to talk about my own experience um, and just kind of keep it going while we're waiting for her to come back. Um, the, yes, talking about autism and how wide and individual it is, it's one of the things that makes it so hard to tell people that you have it because when I... Uh, well when I was young I had the kind of same impressions of autism as everybody else that it was a kind of extreme condition and um, you know the, the kind of person I pictured was usually someone who had a learning disability and learning disabilities are more common among autistic people but they're not the same and so you can be of average intelligence or even high intelligence and be autistic um, but my impression was that, you know, autism and learning disabilities were kind of one and the same thing. Um, so eventually when I started to meet people um, who were autistic, um, I kind of blew my mind in a little way. And I, I realized, you know, I had completely the wrong impression um, and that there was much more to it. Um, I don't know how many people here actually um, are autistic if you want to give a wave if you are quite a few hands waving it'll be interesting to hear like what your um experience of autism was like before you realized what it was um but I found out what it was after talking to a friend who was telling me about her anxiety and how that kind of manifested in very particular ways for her so uh, my mum is actually on the call right now, and I'm sure she would tell you about how, you know, from, from childhood, uh, even things like walking down the street where there was buses and cars, and I just, I couldn't cope well with it at all, you know, I, you know, the, the amount of encouragement she'd have to give me sometimes just to like walk to the corner shop with her, or, you know, to go into a shop, um, you know, was was something we kind of got used to and we just thought it was like me being sensitive and my personality and to to realize that these problems sort of fell within a um a, you know a tribe almost I'm going to use that word you know because it isn't just like a a disorder but you know a, a collection of traits that a lot of people have um and you know isn't isn't necessarily a bad thing it's bad when it's triggered but, you know, we're not the problem. It's like the, the sensory assault that is the problem. Um, it, it, it was amazing to find out, you know, that these things, you know, had a name. And I suddenly made sense to myself in a way that I didn't before. I didn't understand why I wasn't like other people or why, why I couldn't get on with things like other people could get on with things. Um, I don't know if Laura is back yet. Oh, yes, I think I can see you moving. Hi. Um, so I don't know where where we lost you, but I was just giving a bit of background about how I was as a kid and my misconceptions of autism and realising what it was and then realising other people did not know what it was. They still had the impression that I had when I was growing up of it being this intellectual disability as opposed to, you know, what... What we, how, so yes, how would you describe it? 
So, yeah, so I think you're right. I think very often, very often people with um, autism do also have um, a learning disability. And I think that's kind of the, the impression we've got. And really, until Rain Man, people didn't really know about autism. It was one of those things that just wasn't talked about. And the person who Rain Man was about wasn't even autistic. So the whole thing is quite muddied. And I also think we had a very stereotypical white young male kind of in dodgy jumpers or scientific guy with his hair all over the place who could do amazing things like with physics but couldn't make a cheese sandwich kind of thing. I think that's mm -hmm. the view that we had um, of autism. So when it was raised with me, I realized that, I'd, first of all, I didn't really know what it was. Um, but secondly, I kind of thought it was somebody who was incredibly shy and somebody who, you know, couldn't make conversation and and I communicate for a living, you know, it's how I make my money. So, I, so I, I found it very difficult to believe about myself. And I think that that stereotype has been really damaging to people, particularly women or non-binary people um, who don't fit that very kind of stereotypical view that the world has of it. When I was asked to describe it, um, I think it, it's like having a different operating system, not a better one, not a worse one. So it's like the difference between being a Mac or a PC or a cat or a dog or whatever. And if you have um, a PC and you try and load a Mac package onto it, like you try and load Mac-based Photoshop onto it, it's not going to work. But it doesn't mean that the computer's wrong or the software's wrong. It just means that they're not compatible. Or if you, I don't know, if you sent a cat out to retrieve a pheasant in the field when it had just been shot, rather than a Labrador, the cat's not going to go and it's not going to work. It doesn't mean that a cat's not great at catching mice or whatever. And so, so for me, I think the way that I would describe it in one sentence is people, autistic people have a different operating system. We experience the world differently and we relate to the world differently, um, but, but, but not less, you know, mm. not less well. Just, it, it is harder for us in some respects and easier for us in others. I, I don't fit the savant stereotype, but I, I have to hold my hands up for the dodgy jumper stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> I do not like shopping. My jumpers are dodgy and old. <laughs> no, no, well, I don't like shopping either. I really hate shopping. Um, and um, and I like very plain things. And I think, yeah, but but yeah, I don't care that much about clothes. But I, but I care way more about clothes than the stereotypical, you know, kind of autistic sciencey boy really what is so we, you, you mentioned about um you know boys quite a lot um what it's, it's quite hard to sort of phrase the question without giving the impression that there is boy autism and girl autism because that is not the case um but they do present kind of differently um could you talk a bit about that so I think that, the, yeah, I think that there are different kinds, there are different kinds of autism and they don't necessarily always kind of match to a girl or match to a boy. Um, but when you read any of the medical literature about, about autism, it'll be, it'll, it'll ask questions that will relate to a way that a girl isn't generally raised. So we're socialized. I mean, it, it's getting much better now, but generally that, you know, certainly when I was growing up, there were girl toys and there were boy toys. So, and one of the questions is, you know, does, you know, do they line up their trains? Well, I didn't have trains. I mean, I would have loved a train set, frankly, and I'd have loved to have lined it up, but I never got that. So I was given things like dolls and, and, it, and if somebody were observing me with the dolls, they might not, it, it, the subtle differences in the way that I would have, the things I would have done with them would, would not necessarily show. So with me, I 
um, I didn't love dolls particularly, but I quite like the dolls clothes and folding them and, and almost filing them in the wardrobe and organizing everything and having it all very kind of sort of perfect. But then I didn't do that thing that other girls would do where they'd kind of have their Barbie doll and they'd have their Ken doll and they'd get married and they'd have fights and they'd have a baby and they didn't do any of that. I just did the tidying up their house kind of thing. But I think that's harder for somebody observing, you know, when they do, um, when they do autism assessments, I think it's harder for somebody observing that than it is if you just see, you have something quite square like trains that you'll watch somebody lining up. So I think that's slightly problematic. And also um, girls, girl, little girls often have Real, real special interests. So, you know, you will find neurotypical girls who are really interested in ponies or interested in a boy band or interested in whatever it is. But what you'll find with the autistic girl is that her interest is, her knowledge is much, much greater. So it might be that all girls collect, all the girls in her class collected My Little Pony, but she would know the history of My Little Pony. <laughs> she would be able to tell you, you know, why this little pony's mane was slightly different to this one and what production line it came off or whatever. Um, but those things I think are harder, are harder for parents and physicians to pick up. So, yeah. Um, and also I think that there is this myth that um, all autistic people are incredibly shy or incredibly introverted. And I don't think that's true, but I think what happens is that um, it is that the way that that boys and girls and are raised, you know, uh, we are raised to be either a girl or a boy generally, and then and we're and we're socialised to behave in a certain way. So I think what often happens is if you're raised to be a boy and you're autistic and you're frustrated and you're overloaded in this century fashion and all of those kinds of things you'll kind of push it outwards and your behavior will be such that that people will describe it as problematic but you'll be pushing all of that kind of discomfort outwards mm. whereas i think with girls or, or those who are raised to be girls i think we're socialized to internalize that pain and that discomfort and so we'll kind of turn it in on ourselves so i think often you'll find that um that in an effort to control things you know you'll develop some kind of disordered eating or you'll kind of become anxious or depressed or whatever because you're not kind of you know throwing it all out there and i think that's that's a really big problem i i saw um a talk by sarah Hendricks. she's a researcher in autism and um she said how she thinks um a lot of men and boys cope with autism by saying no to things that girls and women cope by saying yes and trying to please uh, so when men and boys say no people will try and accommodate them and change things and if it, it becomes a bit more noticeable as well if you if you try if, if someone is saying no and other people are trying to include them but if the person automatically says yes and then silently panics um that can go unnoticed yeah absolutely and i also think that there is something um for me at least and not you know i can't generalize about kind of autism or women or whatever i can just talk about my experience and the experience of many women i've met and for me i really distinctly remember being around five being in the playground watching the girls doing all the things they were doing they were playing with dolls they were pretending to be charlie's angels they were doing all sorts of things and i just looked at them and thought i'm just not the same as you and i remember thinking very clearly I'm not the same as you. And then my next thought was, but I need to pretend to be because 
because because it's important and I didn't know why and I wasn't old enough to articulate those thoughts but 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 I guess looking back on it it was needing a feeling of safety and that safety was fitting in which I think is important for girls um mm. because because often at school they are quite in, in quite groups they're quite grouped Sorry yeah. that, by the way <laughs> I, I I was a big fan of nature documentaries and animals and I thought um at, at school, I remember looking at the other kids as, as through, through almost the lens of the nature documentary and that I would study them and copy them. And I had uh, one friend in, in particular who I just latched onto and she was my, um, you know, safety friend who I would just follow around. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think that, yeah, there's definitely that. And I think you kind of have, you sort of model this girl. When I was at school, there was a girl who was a few years above me and she had the word Elvis written on her plimsolls. And I didn't know who Elvis was, but I, but I called her, in my head, she was the Elvis girl. And when anything happened, I'd think, well, what would the Elvis girl do? <laughs> I'd cut my hair when she got a new jumper. I would want to wear a jumper of that color if she, yeah. Anything she did, I copied because she just seemed to be this sort of, this paragon of, of what one should be. Yeah, well, we, you know, we started this by saying, um, you know, how, how, different autistic people are different and we're so different you know we're of course we're individuals we're different but there's so many things in your book that you wrote where I feel were kind of plucked from my life um you know whether um well well so 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 many things it's almost like hard hard to pick but um so if we talk about feelings for example like leading up to this um conversation um I was feeling really excited to talk to you and the last two weeks I, I had told my boyfriend that I hate feeling excited like <laughs> this very flat out I hate it <laughs> because it's too stimulating and I don't deal with um strong emotions whether they're positive or negative um and it's, I find it really remarkable just how similar autistic people are and how different at the same time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I talk about there being like kind of three feelings, the good feeling, the bad feeling and the neutral feeling. And some, and sometimes the volume of those feelings gets turned up. So I would like to live my life in neutral. Just don't want anything much to happen. Just want everything to feel quite soft and quite nice. You know, if somebody said to me, I know you can win the lottery tomorrow and you can have a Ferrari and, da, 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 and you, know, you can fall madly in love with kind of, you know, Brad Pitt and he'll come around. And I just, <laughs> oh, no, really. I just want to know that I'm going to get a nice supper tonight. And I just want to know that it's going to be quiet and that my sheets aren't going to be scratchy and that, you know, everything's just going to be kind of quite calm. Um, but then I find in that way that that way of being human that I that I don't manage to ever live like that. So obviously there is there are the ups and downs of life, and I do have a job where where often exciting things happen. I just don't process them in the same way as other people do. So I do a lot of celebrity interviews, for example, and people get really excited about it, and I'm just like. Oh, but I have to go to Hampshire and Hampshire is like 200 miles away and I don't know where I'm going to have my lunch and you know and and what am I going to do about like ridiculous things that other people just wouldn't think about and well I won't be home until 9 30 which means that you know I'll miss having my bath at 8 30 and blah, blah, blah. um 
but yeah, but I think that I, I, one of the things that I did in therapy that I wrote about was um, I kind of was given a feelings wheel where you have to kind of color in the different feelings you're feeling. And that did help me in many ways to kind of unravel what emotions are. But, um, but still, I would rather be in the neutral. Well, you start your book by talking about emotions. And that also for me was my um, kind of uh, aha moment well all the 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 the, the beginning of the aha um was uh I, I i spent hours and hours for months like reading about emotions like on on wikipedia on you know various websites you know like how how do you feel them how do you know you're having them how other people what do they look like how what do they feel like um and I mentioned this to a, fr- a friend <laughs> and um, she she said, oh, that's, that's a bit strange. <laughs> and she said, do, do you think you might be autistic? And I said, no, no, um, because, you know, I didn't really know what it was. And she she asked me, you know, look, look it up because, um, you know, that I think the, the theme seems to be that autistic people just, the world is overwhelming and um that often gets attributed to just our personalities but it's 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 the ways that we find it overwhelming and how um common that overwhelm is it's it's not that something happened to us like ptsd or like a trauma um it's it's that different processing like you said like we have our personalities and if you attribute autism to a personality, nobody's going to seem autistic because autistic isn't a personality. Absolutely. That's so true. And I think that, that that's that, that's a really, really good point. And also, if you raised a child, um, an autistic child, in the perfect environment for that child, whatever their perfect environment was, for me, it would be pink and soft and fluffy. And you didn't make them go to school and they could eat whatever they wanted whenever they wanted to eat it and it would always be available and you made this perfect world, then all of the things that we talk about as autistic traits, would ne- you'd never see them. You know, there would never be a meltdown because everything would be just so. And, that you know, so, so I, I think you're right. And also I think that I think it's complicated because we have these labels, these descriptions of, of neurodiversities, um, but often I think they're quite overlapping. So most people I know who are autistic also would probably qualify for an ADHD diagnosis. I know that I certainly would. Um, yes, I have that as a diagnosis yeah. as well. And, yeah, and so then you get that kind of thing. I, and I just noticed something pop up in the comments, which made me think about it. Then you get that thing where where there is that conflict. So my autism makes me want to do something absolutely perfectly. And my ADHD traits mean that I will sit there for five hours not doing that thing, which means that it won't be perfect. Whereas a neurotypical person would sit there and just do their best. And that would be yeah. it. They'd come way earlier. It's, it's a very all or nothing, like you swing from one to the other. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned environment because I just got up on my my Kindle, actually. I, I highlighted a quote from your book and I thought this this is like the important thing. Um, so you, you said um, the importance of environment is so important to autistic people and we need to stop trying to be less autistic and start creating environments in which we can thrive. 
Yeah, I think that's really true. And I've been really lucky. And one of the questions that I get asked a lot, and also to be fair, one of the criticisms that I get leveled at me a lot, generally from men, it has to be said, is that, um, you know, why, why do I need, why do I need a diagnosis? Um, how can I be autistic when I'm successful? But the reason I, the reason I'm successful at my job is I'm one of those incredibly lucky people. And I realize this has changed for everybody over the last year, because many of us can now do this, but I've always been able to work at home in my pajamas, you know, eating what I want to eat when I want to eat it and behaving however I want to behave. And that is just a sheer stroke of luck that, you know, that I managed to become a writer and that's what I do. Um, but I think that I'm really hopeful that now that the world has moved on to homeworking, that many more autistic people will be able to find their niche, but actually just be able to do it in an environment which, which often is a home environment, which will suit them way better than going into an office. So, so that was quite an interesting thing that you you, you said that I just want to kind of go back back to you and delve delve a bit deeper. Like, if if we are just different, and I'm just devil's advocate if we are just different why do we need a diagnosis why does anyone need a diagnosis can't can't we just be different I think it's a really good question um and I think it depends on your life stage so I think that if I had so I don't have any exams at all I don't have any GCSEs I didn't go to college I didn't go to university I, I utterly failed at school and was miserable every single day of my education and had a diagnosis been available for me when I was a child and the kind of supports that are available now, albeit patchily, then my, my academic life would have been very different. And, to, and I think that would have been of benefit to me. The reason I got diagnosed um, in my 40s was for a couple of reasons. One, um, because once it was raised with me, I was like a dog with a bone. I just couldn't let it go. I just needed to know. I needed a professional to either say yes or no to me. And also because um, as a writer, I knew I was going to write about the subject. And I did not, I didn't feel confident and comfortable writing about a subject without a professional diagnosis. Because what if I was wrong? What if I was wrong and I wrote this book and I said all this stuff and and that could affect the lives of you know loads and different people. So that's why it was important important for me but I also think um but I but I also really believe that self-diagnosis is very valid too um and often people don't have um people don't have the um the ability or the means or whatever to get a diagnosis um and so I think that I think having this words like autism or ADHD or whatever means that you can find your tribe and that I think is really important because you know the diagnosis process was interesting and I learned a lot about myself and a lot about autism and the specialist therapy I had afterwards was very helpful in helping me put some routines and things in place um but by by and large the best thing that's happened to me is finding this tribe of people who I totally relate to which is something I would never have had before and without those labels we wouldn't find that community that's that's very true um I, I I remember when I was diagnosed it wasn't so much um that I found out that I was different I found that I was the same as these other people exactly exactly that yeah yes um well I, I thought um I would um bring in, bring up some um questions or, or statements really that other people have said to me um you know when I've told them that I was um, autistic so I, I only told about two or three people before I thought oh I, I think I might back off <laughs> telling non-autistic people for a while um 
but so I thought I'll put these two see how how you respond um so the classic of course you don't seem autistic yeah I know that's really a great one somebody told me once on Twitter which is great so and I think it's amazing t-shirt someone said you know to her you don't look autistic and she's like and you don't look stupid but still here we are kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it is it is true I mean there is no look it, it, it really there is no look and I think that that one of but that is something that is starting to come out, I think. With social media, I think that's been a real help because people see people's profile pictures and realise that, yeah, we're all really different. So, Yeah, and you, I, I think people expect um, to get a diagnosis. You need to be absolutely devastated by it, which is, is quite an, an ableist way to look at it. Like you, do, you don't need to wait to get to that point before you start um, diagnosing people as well. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think that, for, so I got my diagnosis in quite a weird way. I'll really tell you really quickly. Um, I had some physical health problems. I'd had some really weird health problems over my lifetime that doctors could never quite explain. I got misdiagnosed with all sorts of physical illnesses. Um, and my favorite, personal favorite is um, just bad luck. Um, but, um, but eventually I got um, a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which often comes with autism. And I was in hospital having some tests and for um, something called POTS, which often comes alongside EBS. And I was in this hospital. It's really, really, it's hottest day of the year. The air conditioning had broken. I had this tilt table test where they, it's like torture. They strap you to a table. Yes, I call it the torture table test. I have had one. <laughs> they do terrible things to you. Um, and, and you're not allowed to eat. And my, one of my real, real triggers is kind of hunger. So, and I was told that after the test, I would go back to my room, there would be a tuna sandwich waiting, the air conditioning would be working, I'd be able to sit quietly. Got to my room, the air conditioning was broken, there was a screaming child in the room next door, there was no tuna sandwich, no glass of water, and I just exploded and had a meltdown. And that's happened to me in a hospital setting numerous times. And every single time they thought that I was like a stuck up, princessy, really entitled, horrible person. But this nurse didn't roll her eyes tuck and walk out. She sat down on the bed next to me and kind of put her arm around my shoulder and was just like, we've really failed you here. We see loads of autistic people and we should have realized that, you know, that these things should have been in place for you. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't really know what autism is, but I know I'm not autistic. But if it gets me a tuna fish sandwich, then I'll <laughs> over there. So I'm like, I'm like, mm. so I nodded and nodded. And I had to stay overnight. And I kind of thought, and as I was sort of sitting in my room, you know, how bored you are in hospital, um, after, the, after the sandwich and I was feeling better, I just kind of thought, well, I don't really know what autism is. I don't really understand it. I'll Google it. And I Googled it and thought, mm, yeah, well, I do that and I do that. And then I Googled autistic women and suddenly mm. it was just like kind of coming home. I read all of these kind of first person accounts and all of these lists of different traits. And I was literally just ticking boxes from everything from, you know, preferring comfortable clothes to, you know, the way that I related to my peers in childhood and everything. And then um, when I came home from hospital, um, a couple of days later, I was walking on the beach with my husband and I'm like, I think I'm autistic and he's like no you're not don't be ridiculous and I'm like no really I think I am and he's just like really in another diagnosis do we really need this so I kind of didn't think about it for a, a little while um but then but then it just niggled at me and I just found myself obsessively googling and that's why I decided I need yeah, to you, you have to know I, I had that kind of another diagnosis feeling as well like I, I was almost embarrassed to have this extra yeah. thing 
yeah and there is that kind of slight embarrassment and yeah and I had so I was um I was misdiagnosed um with something called hyperventilation syndrome when I was in my late teens um and I was given tranquilizers that I didn't realize were tranquilizers and I ended up in rehab and um and it was all really awful and in rehab um one of the kind of the things that you hear a lot is everyone here thinks they're special and different you're not special and different <laughs> and so to suddenly then start collecting all of these sort of three letter diagnoses and you suddenly feel like well I know I'm not special but you know I am a bit different and it, that's quite it's quite difficult to reconcile that it's quite difficult not to just keep going but um but when I got my EDS and POTS diagnoses um at the same time so did my son and that I think made it feel easier for me the fact that I was doing the right thing as a mother so because I think sometimes we're quite harsh on ourselves but we wouldn't be harsh and our friends or our children or whoever and yeah no. yes uh the get, get, getting it as an addition was both kind of both both embarrassing because I sort of felt like oh now my personality has a diagnosis um but also um all, all these struggles that I had put down and you know I was talking to my my mum earlier and, and we'd, we'd kind of bundled everything up into like you're overwhelmed because you're physically overwhelmed you're overwhelmed because of you know chronic pain or chronic fatigue or all this kind of thing and be able to separate out and and you know recognize okay um, these are problems that might go away one day and these are problems we have to live with and accept and not fight yeah, I think that's really right. And also sometimes I think that you just have to accept that stuff happens to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm going, stuff happens to my body and I don't know what it is or why it is, um, but just weird things happen to me. So tomorrow I'm going to have an operation because I had um, a marina coil fitted about 18 months ago and um, it transpires that it's gone wandering and it's wandered kind of through my womb and is currently heading somewhere towards my liver, I think. Um, and that is really rare that that happens to people, but it's, you know, I've got a perforated uterus and and that has happened to me. And I think that, I think that when you can see something on a scan like that, then I think it's easier to accept that it's real than hearing this thing where you kind of always question yourself. And with POTS, I know if I stand up, my heart rate will raise. I know it will raise more than 30 beats per minute. I know that it will stay like that. And I know that that doesn't happen to other people, but still I kind of just feel like, oh, well, you know, am I, am I just making a fuss? So I totally get what you mean. Mm. So that, that brings me to my, my other um, point that someone um, asked me is how, how do you know it is an anxiety. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I thought a lot about that as well. And I, um, for me, I think the way that I reconciled that is the things that make other people anxious don't make me anxious. So I'm not anxious standing up in front of a room full of people and talking. I'm not anxious about doing TV. I'm not anxious about interviewing celebrities. I'm not anxious about writing a book and having it out there. I'm not, those things that would make people kind of, you know, would usually be an anxiety provoking thing, don't make me feel anxious. Not being able to find the scarf that I need to wear to go on the train does make me anxious because I know that it will be a sensory nightmare if I can't wrap it around my face and all the smells will be there or whatever. Not being able to find my noise cancelling AirPods would make me anxious. Um, and so I think that, so I, yeah, so I think, and also, yeah, and also whenever I read about people's accounts of anxiety, um, like generalized anxiety disorder or whatever it just doesn't fit me so that's how that's how I have kind of 
I, I broke down the things that made me anxious and I realized that by and large they're all environmental they're all sensory yeah I, I remember um when I was sent to have CBT um for my physical conditions um you know the, the therapist she was um trying to find out what it was about things that I was anxious about like what was the thought you know what what did I think would happen if something was too noisy or too cold or too bright and it's the additional thing of this I think with anxiety you think that that means something additionally um, whereas for us it is just the very fact of yeah. it <laughs> that's it yeah so so um yeah, so it would be things like, I would feel anxious if I had to go to a pub with a whole group of people and sit there all evening at a table. I mean, I realise that nobody does this anymore, but when we used to do this, <laughs> then I, that, that would make me really, really anxious. And when I've done CBT in the past and things, they'd be like, would you be worrying about what they were thinking about you? And I'd be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> would you be, you know, would you be worrying that you, you kind of weren't part of it and things? I'd be like, no. I'd be worried that the food wouldn't be what I wanted it to be. And I'd be worried that I'd be sitting near a loo where you could hear the hand dryer. And I'd be worried about the music being too loud. And I'd be worried about just the exhaustion I feel when you have that just kind of all of that noise around you. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think until my diagnosis, I don't think the therapist either quite believed me or, or could quite understand the difference. Okay. Another, another thing. Um... Sorry, I've got a little list. We'll, we'll go down. I think I've got five. Um, but you're so nice. <laughs> yeah, I think people, do you, do you mean that when you tell people that you're autistic, they're like, but you're so nice? Yeah, uh, you're nice. I like talking to you. You don't, you don't make me feel weird or awkward. I think, that, I think there is this horrible, horrible stereotype that autistic people are incredibly rude. Um, and I think that comes from um, from kind of cultural references, because we are quite often quite honest. And I think it's quite an interesting one, because we live in a culture where we lie to people every single day. And when I met my husband, he'd been married before. And I would say to him things like, does these jeans suit me? And he'd say yes. And I'd go, I don't really think they do, you know, I think they make this stereotypically, I think they might make my bum look big, or I'm just not sure the colour's right, or I don't think this dress works, or what about this haircut, or whatever, and he would lie to me every single time, and one day I said to him, I think you're lying to me, and he said, well yeah, because I don't want to tell you that the jeans aren't nice, and I'm like, I'd rather in the comfort and privacy of our own home, you tell me that the jeans aren't great, than you send me out into the world with everyone going, oh, look at the jeans on her, so, and so I think that there is, so, so I think that autistic people are able to be more honest about that. And if a friend came round and said, do you like this dress? I would say, I don't think it suits you. I don't. And, and I think that that becomes um, people thinking that we're kind of not nice, where actually we're just being honest. And I think it is more helpful to be able, I mean, obviously on someone's wedding day, if they walk down the aisle and they say, do you like my dress? <laughs> Even if they are wearing the most hideous dress, and I was, of course I would lie and say it was the most marvelous thing I'd ever seen. But, but you know, in those other exchanges where the stakes aren't so high, I think that we can. That I think that people imagine that that we're horrible because we are able to be more honest. In a way. Yeah, I, I remember once I bought this um, jacket, and my boyfriend he had a, a friend round, and I put the jacket on in front of them both and said to him, "You know, what do you think?" And he said, "No, the colour makes you look really tired and like." you look a weird shape and his friend was horrified but I just thought thanks that I've I've saved 50 pounds or however much it was yeah 
exactly that yeah but even now my husband still he has sugar coat stuff and really I just want just like total bluntness um okay so um me being diagnosed um I got one response I guess that proves that everyone is a bit autistic and on the spectrum somewhere so it's a really annoying one um so the thing is all autistic traits are human traits we don't have any alien traits or cat traits or whatever we're we're all human we have a few cat traits (laughs) just a few but you know so anything that we experience is part of the human experience. We just process it differently and experience the world differently. And we're all just a bit autistic. I mean, a doctor, my one of my EDS doctors said that to me and it was really, really annoying. And I think that the other thing is that people don't really understand what a spectrum is. So they think of it as, as a continuum. They think of it as a line. And so here you've got very autistic and here you've got not autistic at all. And we all sit somewhere along that. But a spectrum is like the circly wheel of death you get on your Mac where, you know, where it spins around and you get those little, or like a pie chart or like um, the trivial pursuit thing. And in one bit, you'll have communication difficulties. In another bit, you'll have sensory difficulties. In another bit, you'll have you know, something else and something else and something else. And you'll, and all autistic people will be able to kind of pinpoint where they sit. But also it's about the level of difficulty that you have. So yeah, somebody might, uh, my husband has lots of sensory issues, particularly around sound. And he's not autistic, but he, but he really struggles with being in environments where he can't pick out the people that are talking to him and everything else is too loud around him. But that doesn't make him autistic. That makes him somebody who has a problem with sound. And and I think that, and I think it sort of, I just think it, it's it's not good for anyone, for everyone to believe that. It's good for everyone to believe that we all, that we all live in the same world and we all have the same human experiences, but it is just a bit devaluing of their struggles and the, and the, and the achievements of autistic people if you just think, oh, well, we're all a bit like that. All right, well, next question on the list is, um, don't say that you are autistic, you have autism. Oh, for God's sake. I, I just, I think, so I think everybody has the right to identify however they want to identify. Um, and often, um, and I will always describe myself as somebody who's autistic, like I would always describe myself as somebody who is a mother or a brunette or whatever, because I'm not, a person with motherness or a person with brown hairness or whatever I you know but for me my autism is an integral part of who I am equally um I speak to a lot of parents um of children and they feel very strongly that they want to say that their child has autism rather than is autistic because they feel like you're kind of writing the child off um or whatever and I think that and I think I have sympathy with both of, you know, you know, I have sympathy with the parents' view like that. And so I will always, I will always refer to somebody in the way that they want to be referred to. But I do find it annoying when somebody tells me how I should identify myself. Yes. And I'm not sure actually why it is so either or, because being and having are, you know, like I am a sister, I have a brother, you know, yeah. I, I am this, I have I have that you know you can you can say this for your job you can say this for any relationship you can think of um you know maybe it stops at um you know my other conditions but I always think it's a bit um 
strange when people say that as well because um, when I say I am autistic I'm saying I am autistic I didn't say I am an autism yeah exactly and I just think it's about respecting what people I think it's about respecting what people want to say about themselves so if if you say to somebody I am autistic and they say don't say that then that's a bit like them saying I'm Jane and you're like don't say that say you're Danielle instead I mean yeah yeah there's no logic to it. Or if someone got married, you know, um, actually this person had actually recently got married and I thought, how would you respond if I said, oh, don't define yourself by your, your marriage and your husband and then insisted in using her old name. Yeah, exactly. Or, or calling her Ms instead yeah. of Mrs. Okay, so the, the last one on the list is... Um, so th- this is this is a, a, a rough um, kind of gist of what the person meant. Um, so that other person is more weird and awkward to talk to you than you. So they must be more autistic. So somebody told me something once. I'm trying to remember it so I say it accurately for everybody. But it's um, someone who says um, people say your autism isn't very severe and the, the, the person said um, no you're not experiencing my autism very severely and I think it is and I, and I think that that is that is what it is so, you know if somebody's d- difficult to talk to that might just be because they're a difficult person to talk to they might not be a very nice person it might have nothing mm-hmm. to do with the thing um, some of us and I think this comes with age and experience as well um, can make sure we make people feel comfortable when we're talking to them some of us don't have that talent but that's not um that's not down to being autistic or not you know some you know we've all worked with people who aren't autistic who make us feel terrible every time they open their mouths but you know we don't call them severely neurotypical or say neurotypicalness is more severe we just say "Hmm, he's a bit of a nightmare it's also kind of defining autism in relationship to um how neurotypical people experience us so they experience the social awkwardness they don't experience my sensory issues um so and when we talk about it as a spectrum we're not talking about um social awkwardness as a spectrum (laughs) we're saying there's there's more traits than just that and some of them they, they are my private ones that you you don't even know I'm kind of having or processing but also um, I look at some of my autistic friends who um, you know quite noticeable, noticeably do have problems maintaining a conversation but they are doing things that I really struggle to do you know like they they go into town where, where when I can barely get on a bus you know um, they they've gone through school college university whereas I wasn't able to well I, I managed to do one GCSE at home but I didn't get further than that um you know so they are doing other things as, as well you can't just define someone by how they socially interact and make you feel totally true yeah absolutely so that's that's kind of like the things people do wrong but how would you uh, say people can get get things right especially like in a a WI context if you want to make a WI meeting autism friendly what would you recommend that people do um 
so I think it's the same with everything. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about um, differences that people have in all sorts of different ways. We talk about, you know, kind of um, ethnicities, we talk about um, gender, we talk about sexuality, we talk about neurodiversity, we talk about all of these things. And I think by and large, people want to be understood. And so, so I think if you meet someone and they say, I'm autistic, I have ADHD, I'm, you know, whatever, I'm a religion you've never heard of, I have this disability, I have whatever, you know, whatever then I think most people kind of really appreciate being politely asked a question. So rather than saying you don't look autistic or whatever, how, how is that experience for you? Well, what, what is being autistic to you? And, and, and ask them the question, you'll learn about them and, you know, and they'll ask you questions in return. And, that, and that's just how you build relationships. But I think it's kind of not treating it like it's something that has to be kind of hushed up. I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that we are willing to talk about all sorts of really kind of things that we would never have discussed before, you know, kind of sex, religion, politics, all of those things that we would, you know, never discuss at a polite dinner party that we're now very comfortable talking about in an open arena. And I think sometimes um, when you mention something like autism or a physical disability or something else, people just kind of clam up and they're like, just don't talk about that, don't talk about that. And I just think, well, yeah, we all just want to be seen really, don't we? And then there's the, the obvious um, sensory things like quieter darker space that people could go into make it known that people are welcome to go into those spaces yeah absolutely and also yeah absolutely and also so I didn't grow up um with any of those accommodations and I think one of the things that I've learned to do is is accommodate myself in those ways so like if I booked a, a cinema ticket for example when we used to be allowed out I would always book an ILC I would always make sure I could leave if I needed to or wanted to without disturbing other people and things like that so when I hear about accommodations being made then I always find it utterly thrilling that you know somebody else thought about it well we're coming up to half past so I wonder if anyone um listening has questions and you can unmute your microphone um so Alison you've got your hand up if you want to unmute you will be recorded the audio will be recorded so if you don't want that you can use the text chat but if you're happy with your voice being on the recording um you can unmute um myself and a number of other women within the WI are right as we speak um busy writing a resolution with the idea of getting it to conference in 2022 um, about underdiagnosis of both ASD and ADHD. Um, we're making the points that people with these conditions will have less likely to be in full-time employment. They're more likely to be diagnosed with mental health conditions. In fact, a lot of us have been misdiagnosed for years. We all know that. That they're overrepresented in the prison population, which I didn't know, but one of the national trustees pointed that one out to me. And they do we have a shorter life expectancy. Mm. Because of these things, I thought, right, it's about time that we sort of looked at all the legislation and all the guidance. And I don't know if you've read the guidance that goes on and on and on and on. It's got 24 bullet points at one point. And but women's presentation is different, comes in at bullet point 23. <laughs> <laughs> really, it just... So, like I say, we're putting together this presentation, this resolution, um, and I'm going to be ready to send it up to my federation at the end of July. I'm hoping, I think there's a couple of other people on here that are going to send it to their federation. 
I'd love it if people want to come on board and get behind it. Yeah, that's 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 really good that that could happen. And, you know, maybe you can talk to your WIs about autism and women in advance so they've kind of got it in their heads. Oh, we've we've got speakers already lined up. I mean, I'm not going to talk to my own WI because there are other WI members who are skilled speakers about this who are going to come and talk to my own WI. Not, I mean, they know I'm autistic. They elected me president. And I said, you do realise I'm <laughs> Thank you very much for listening, everybody. I'll shut up again and let somebody else... No, it's fascinating. Thanks, Alison. Yeah. Well, well, I think that would be really good if that could happen, because I think the WI is quite a good good place for autistic women to come because there's a a lot of structure and you can nominate your special interest as a subject of a subgroup and that's pretty good if that happens. (laughs) Hi Rosa can I ask a question I don't have a photograph up I'm afraid so I can't put my hand up it's Anna my name's Anna Um, I'm the mother of an autistic child um, and just wanted to ask uh, Laura a little bit about she spoke about specialist therapists that she received when she she received her diagnosis I just wondered if she could expand on those a bit I understand a little bit about the therapies that children get but not so much with adults and also I just wondered if she'd give us a little bit of insight onto how um autistic being autistic can affect motherhood does it have does it you know like you mentioned you had one of your children were was autistic um I don't know if your others are the pros and cons for both really because it's almost like the opposite to what I, I have. I, I do have quite a lot of understanding uh, of autism. Um, I worked as a teacher for, with a lot of autistic children. So we were very, I was very quick on the, you know, from the start, I, I could tell, I could read the signs and we got our son diagnosed very young. Um, but I just wondered, in, you know, how, what it was like the other way around. Okay, so... Um... The therapy I had was cognitive analytical therapy, CAT, which I think is less common than CBT. And I think CBT doesn't work so well um, with um, autistic people as it does with neurotypical people generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and for me, um, a, lot of, a lot of it was incredibly practical. It was, a lot of it was about putting in, uh, about te- I, I'm incredibly scatty. I don't remember to brush my teeth in the morning. I don't, I wouldn't remember to eat. I don't, you know, there's lots of stuff that I just, that, there's lots of adulting that I haven't got my head around, even the hugely old age that I currently am. So um, a lot of it was, a lot of it was about that. A lot of it was also coming to terms with the fact that I had, um, that you know I had this this huge diagnosis but I'd also had these other physical health diagnoses and I've had a lot of trauma in my life as well so it was all around that so I don't know how much that relates to the child Um, Mm -hmm. but I think you know once they get into teenage years if they have any if they have any issues that are more than just um, autism then I think that cognitive analytical therapy is really really helpful so my children, so my children are neurodivergent. None of them has an autism diagnosis, um, but equally none of them would describe themselves as neurotypical, I don't think. <laughs> uh, and one of them very recently had an ADHD diagnosis, but he also has kind of quite a lot of autistic traits. But again, um, they have all come to this in adulthood because I was very young when I had them. Um, I was going to say, can't possibly have grown up children. Oh, well, the thirties. That's very kind. My husband is. Oh my gosh. He does my lighting, so really, years older than I really look here. Oh, I need him here. <laughs> um, and um, 
motherhood. So I think it's really interesting uh, because I think that that yes, I think that kind of one's neurotype probably does affect how one parents, but also I think I think our childhood. Um, affects how we parent as well. And my childhood was incredibly unautistic friendly. My, I was adopted um, into quite a chaotic family. There was quite a lot of trauma. I never felt safe. Um, there were lots of issues around food. It was just, it was a very difficult childhood. My mother had mental health mm. She was constantly um, being hospitalized at a time when mental health institutions were really quite terrifying places to be. I mean, you know, they weren't that dissimilar to Victorian asylums. So there was a lot going on. And I think that I found being a child really, really difficult. So I tried to make my children's childhood really magical. And I tried to, oh. I, I tried to allow them to do whatever they mm -hmm. wanted to do. Was that a good thing? I don't know. I mean, you know, that if my kids came, if my kids got up in the morning and said, I don't want to go to school today, I'd say, okay fine don't go to school and because we lived in a big house and because I am quite confident and because I speak with a plummy accent nobody ever said anything so yeah one of, one of my kids probably went to school about like about a third of the time he was meant to be there um and looking back I was very young and looking back that probably isn't what I would do now now I would get them um assessed for their various neurodivergences and give them more support at school um, I was just going to say, for a child who may be struggling in school, is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, I don't who know. Knows? I mean, yeah, who knows? I mean, mm. um, I don't know. I mean, they've all gone on to, um, you know, do their own thing. They're all very confident. Um, and, and we have an incredibly honest relationship. There's nothing that they wouldn't tell me. And I spent my whole teenage years lying to my mother about everything from, you know, where I was to what I'd eaten to everything. Um, Sounds perfectly normal to me. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so I, I I don't know, but I think that um, but I, I think that one of the things that I was able to do as somebody neurodivergent is understand my my children's sensory my, understand my children's experience of the sensory world. So, mm -hmm. for example, my parents used to tell a story about how I had a yellow coat and a blue coat that were exactly the same, exactly the same brand. Everything was about was the same about them. I would happily wear the blue one, but I wouldn't wear the yellow one or the other way around. I can't remember. Mm. Um, and, and they, so I would get sort of smacked or told off or whatever for it. And, um, whereas with my children, I would be, what is it about the blue one you don't like? And then it, if it's the label scratch, you take the label out, you know? So I yeah. think. I think being able to, I think, I think that I was lucky that I was able to, uh, to kind of, to, to understand because I was quite young as well. So it wasn't that long ago that I, that I'd experienced childhood. I think I was able to understand that lack of agency and try and give them some agency. Yeah. I gave them too much. Mm -hmm. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you very much. And just on a funny side, my husband is um, autistic as well. And I did once say, does my bum look big in this? And I really wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> It's almost the opposite to you. Yes, it does, he says, but that's because your bum is big. <laughs> it works both ways, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you. That, yeah, that was good. Um, you mentioning about um, therapies reminded me how what the difference is between a disability like autism and EDS and POTS, because um, in my opinion, if I got rid of my EDS and POTS, that would be great. But autism is a little bit more fuzzy and complicated. Um, so 
could you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, okay. If I could get rid of my EDS and POTS, I would like click my fingers and do it immediately because they're really, apart from being quite good at yoga, there are no upsides to that. Um, autism is difficult and it's really different. And I think that in the way that the world has become very polarized on every single subject at the moment, I think that that on one hand you get people who say everything about autism is wonderful it's just the outside world that's terrible and therefore you know talks of cures are really really dreadful and bloody bloody blah and then on the other side you've got people saying autism is like a blight on humanity we must get rid of all autistic people you know we must never let it happen again and I think that the truth is the way I've experienced my autism is there will have been times in my life where if I could have waved a magic wand and have been like everybody else, I would have waved that magic wand. Of, many of those times have been when I was younger. And I think that, that most young people struggle with identity, struggle with difference and struggle with things at some point in their life. And if they could have waved a magic wand to make them not the person they were, then they would have done that. But now I'm able to see that my autism comes with real benefits. Work-wise, you know, it's brilliant for me. That ability to hyper-focus, that ability to kind of pattern spot, all of those things is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think at the risk of sounding a bit spoiled and selfish, I'd quite like to be able to do a bit of pick and mix. I would like to be able to go out. And I've never been on a girls' night out, ever, ever, ever. Never been out with a group of women because I would find it too noisy and too chaotic and too confusing. But sometimes I'll walk past, you know, a really beautiful pub or a really beautiful restaurant and you've got these women who obviously have this real really strong friendship sitting there and enjoying themselves and if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of my sensory issues at that point I definitely would but on balance if I if it was a black and white yes or no then I would still choose to be autistic. I, I know what you mean it's, it's the very specific uh, situations where where you think oh if I could get on a bus and not feel incredibly stressed and incredibly tense or or if I got the taxi and not have to worry if it smelled uh, before I got to where I was going you know if I could not have those specific things that would be great but with an illness whether whether it's like the physical ones we're talking about or a mental illness like depression or anxiety um they don't have good bits about them or neutral bits about them. They are by definition bad. Um, you don't want them. You, you don't feel uh, that there's anything good about having a migraine in any way. <laughs> Whereas with autism, there are strengths. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I can't, I, the only physical disabilities I can really speak about are yes and pots because I experienced them and I can't see an upside to them and I've never met anybody else who can. In terms of mental illness, it's interesting um, because um, my husband, I know, I've written about this, um, uh, has suffered from mental illnesses in the past and he um, was, he took some medication and he said that it totally took away his creativity. And so he actually, he actually feels similarly to some, to the way that many people feel about about it giving them something and he would and he talks about that light and shade that you get if you suffer from severe depression for example and it really sparking creativity so I haven't really experienced mental illness so I can't really talk about it but uh, but yeah but certainly EDS and POTS no take it away tomorrow please thank you <laughs> yeah whereas autism like like your quote is about creating the environment whereas if you change my environment um you know, I'd be able to cope with my illnesses better, things would be improved, but basically get rid of the illness. Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, does anyone else have any questions? We'll, we'll say goodbye quite soon, I think, because it's coming up to quarter two.
I don't want to leave anyone out if you've got something burning that you'd like to add. Uh, I'm trying, there's like three pages of webcam people I'm just trying to flick through so you can just turn your microphone on because I can't see everyone. Oh, there's a, somebody's just said there's a question above in the chat. Oh, okay. Let me just, oh, I'm trying to find it. There's quite a lot of comments. Can you? Oh, I got Yeah, it's from Philida. And it says, I have a question for Laura. Do you have any advice for autistic people working in a not stereotypically autistic field? I work in charity communications and I'm really worried about disclosing my diagnosis to my company because of stereotypes. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I, I think it's, I think it depends on lots of things, how long you've been there, whether they know how well that you do your job already, whether they're what the benefit of disclosing it to them would be. Would you get um, would you be getting um, different accommodations, um, all, all of those, all of those kind of things. And, and I've you know, I have really never had a proper job where I wasn't working for myself. Um, but I do, you know, I as well as being an Western journalist, I do own a communications agency and I was very nervous about telling my clients about my autism because I work with some quite big brands and I thought about the stereotypes too and I thought maybe they would see me differently and I felt all of those feelings and in the end I wrote a coming out piece for the Telegraph so everybody saw it all at once and, and I have to say everybody was brilliant like totally asked great questions really understanding didn't get any negative comments or anything from anyone I knew <laughs> If, um, <laughs> so I guess if you feel that you would get something out of, of telling people and you work with a team that you can understand, then I would just raise it really gently and just start talking about autism generally and then bring it up. But but I'm not the person to ask about workplaces because I haven't really had one. And would you sort of apply that to telling anyone in general? I think, yeah, I think um, so I was going to tell people one by one. Um, and then in the end just decided to write this piece because it meant that I could say everything I wanted to say uninterrupted. I think it's like coming out with anything. I was telling you before we came on here that when I was thinking about how I was going to tell everyone about my autism, I spoke to a friend of mine um, who came out as gay in the 1980s and he was really interesting on it. He was just like, oh, some people will say, you know, oh, for God's sake, why do we need to know this about you? You know, you're just looking for attention and other people be like, yeah, well, we always knew. And other people would be like, oh, great. You know, we, and just move on to the next thing. And I was very nervous about telling my children, and I kind of psyched myself up for it. And they were sitting at the kitchen table. It's when they'd both just come home from college. Um, and it was just the boys at home then and um they were making toast and i went i just kind of went so yeah i went to see a psychiatrist and i've got an autism diagnosis and there was like a moment silence and then one of them said um oh can we go count cards in vegas haha <laughs> and then the other one um didn't say anything and I thought oh my god I traumatized this child it's all terrible and he just went oh okay what's for supper and I realized he'd just been looking at his screen wasn't really you know totally unbothered and they've never been bothered since so I guess yeah I think I think that the thing I would say is make sure you're in a strong position when you decide to tell people just make sure you're really grounded and you're really happy um and you've really kind of you've really come to terms with it yourself unless you feel that there are people who are going to be really supportive and really nourishing and really helpful in in coming to terms with the diagnosis yourself uh, so we naomi you said in the comments that you have something you'd like to say Mute my bell. hi hello um, 
I, 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 I'm going to struggle how to say this without sounding like a stalker, but I just have a really quick story, which is um, for Laura. So um, it's really strange how I found myself on this webinar tonight, but Laura's was one of the first books I read um, a couple of years ago when I first had my light bulb moment. Um, and I, I felt like she was the first person I'd found that was like me. So actually a good communicator and not kind of typically autistic. And then um, randomly about a year ago, um, I, Laura popped up on my friend's Facebook page and I sent her a message um, to say, oh, my God, I love your book. I've read it. I'm, I'm on a pathway for diagnosis. And um, and then last week I got my diagnosis. And then like the next day this popped up. So I just kind of feel like things have come full circle. Um, congratulations yeah and I think that that's I think we're really lucky that that's what we find so I got my EDS diagnosis because I got sent a review copy of um Ella Woodward deliciously Ella's book um and in the press release illness and so I googled the illness and suddenly I thought and I looked at the symptoms and I thought well I thought that was normal I thought that was normal I thought that was normal and that's how I kind of and then I messaged her um and um, then went to one of her cookery courses and exactly like you, I was like, oh my God, am I being a stalker? But I, I don't think that is the case. I, I, I'm, I did reply to you, didn't I? I get hundreds of messages and sometimes they go into a junk folder, but I did reply, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. And she replied to me and I think that's all, I think as women, that's what we can all do. I think we can be, be that really supportive community for each other. Yeah, it's the finding people who are like you thing again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rach, you have your little hand icon up. Did you want to say something? Uh, yeah, um, I just wanted to say I I got diagnosed like two years ago with autism, although I already knew long before then it was an absolute fight to get a diagnosis um, because I'm also registered blind. So everything just got shoved down to that and it was like, right. And because I also have epilepsy and cerebral palsy as well. So it's just like um, a multitude of different disabilities. So it all just got shoved in one, um, one box and it's really annoying. Yeah, I think especially when you, when you are autistic, you're, you're the kind of person who, well, again, we're all different, but I do think autistic people tend to like to make sense of things. Um, oh, without a doubt. So when you're faced with a system that is kind of um, blocking your way to make sense and make connections and join the dots and instead just wants you to sort of attribute things to something very general, that is incredibly frustrating. I, um, yeah, I, I recognised your voice, uh, not, L Laura. Yes. Oh, okay, I recognised your voice from somewhere and I don't know why. Oh, okay. Well, I done. I do quite a lot of TV stuff. I talk about autism a lot. I've done a lot of radio stuff. So uh, was it on that um, ITV morning show? I've done This Morning and Lorraine. and Yeah, yeah so Lorraine, that was it. Yeah. Oh, thank I you. Uh, no, it's nice to meet you. It's, it's nice to talk to people that actually understand like it really how is, frustrating yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, because they just go, people just go, no, you can't be autistic. Because, yeah. like, the amount of people that have said to me, I can't be autistic because, like, 
lots of um you you like the wrong things to be autistic uh yeah yeah (laughs) i think we've all had that yeah (laughs) oh it's constant i'm like ah um it's very lovely to meet you it's so nice to meet you thank you for letting me come up and speak i'm gonna have to go now but yeah um but it'd be nice to talk to you guys again if possible Yes, well, I'm just going to mute you for a second, because on that note, because um, I have I have read the book and I thought it was great. And I thought if there's enough people interested, um, would anyone be interested in doing a kind of mini book group on Laura's book? Where um, I've, I've already got a few people interested. OK, we've got one thumbs up. If you can wave thumbs up and we can get together okay yeah all right so there's enough people so I will organize that and I'll put the word out in the places um that I advertise this and we can get back together talk about the book and if you haven't read it um I find reading really difficult um because this is one of my interests I was able to read it but (laughs) um but if you haven't read it uh, or you can't read it you can still come and you know hear us talk about it and come and ask questions and so on oh Liz you've got your hand up is that a question yeah I read it really soon after it first came out and I have recommended it to so many people um to be honest it reads like a novel it's a really easy read it's not like you know massive textbooks that we sometimes read for uh, research and stuff like that it gives you an enormous amount of information that you might get from a textbook and yet at the same time it's actually like reading a novel I thought and I have read it I have recommended it to a lot of people and I would do so again now Oh, that's really kind. Thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, when, when I t- uh, when I posted in the different groups to say that we'd be talking to you, Laura, um, the amount of people who said that you gave them their, um, you know, revelation that made autism make sense mm-hmm. to them and put it into a context that was just really helpful. You know that that came up over and over again because of your book. That's really lovely. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it for that kind of reason, really. I wrote it because I didn't, at that point, I hadn't found anyone like me. As I said before, um, I think I I said before that there are lots of other really great memoirs now by autistic women, but at the time, there just really wasn't anything that I could find that spoke to me. So, yeah, so it's thrilling to hear that. And thank you. Um, And I think um, because this is a topic that um, had a lot of interest, I will see who else, um, you know, I can get to come and talk about it and we'll revisit it. And ADHD as well um and Laura if you want to come back you could come back for another another round um but I will organize the book group and at someone put in the chat it's on audible as well oh it is it's read by the really brilliant Helen from the archers which is because I'm I can't read out loud so I didn't do it (laughs) great so yeah Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. This was such an enjoyable chat and I'm, I'm going to be sending it to my dad and my cousins. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And I'll, be, I'll keep in touch. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, and if you have um, you know, more questions, you can send me a message on Facebook and you know, we can either put it forward to like the book group discussion or to our next speaker. And I'll let you know, you know what else we're going to be doing. That was the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who came and listened and asked questions. And especially thank you so much to Laura James. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I'm looking forward to the next podcast.